Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, church. Great to be with you this Sunday. And today we're continuing our study in 1 Peter called The Grace of Exile. And today our message is called Exile Trials from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. So if you'd turn there in your Bibles, I'd love to read this passage in its entirety to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 begins this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, speak to us today from your word. Help us, Lord, to be prepared for the trials that come with the exilic Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. For this teaching, I want you to imagine a young man. Let's say that he's 16 years old, and let's call him Christian. He grew up in a home that didn't push any particular religion upon him, but told him to search out his truth. One day, during his sophomore year, a classmate invited him to something called youth group. He didn't really know what that meant, but thought it had something to do with this classmate's church. Christian went and found himself intrigued. Everything was different. He didn't understand very much at youth group, but he liked the people and the joy that they had, so he kept on going. That summer, he ended up joining the youth group at their summer camp. Again, he had no idea what he was in for, but detached from his regular life, he found himself inspired, and one night during a chapel service, he surrendered his life to Jesus, and his conversion was legitimate. It was real. It was true. He was born again, and he loved the living hope that God had given to him. He felt forgiven, clean, loved by God, and so Christian began quickly growing and changing. He knew that he could not live the way he had lived before. Though Christian was excited about this newfound life, he soon discovered that other people weren't as excited. His girlfriend didn't like his new thoughts about something called purity, and his friends didn't like that he stopped drinking with them. He tried to comfort himself with the fact that he had many new church friends, but it still saddened him that many of his social connections were being cut off. And since he was a studious person, a studious believer, he started to accurately see the worldview of even his teachers. 
He'd taken an apologetics and worldview class at his church, and his newfound beliefs began to enter into his papers. A few of his teachers expressed their disappointment. Some gave him the cold shoulder or gave him a hard time in class. Others gave him bad grades. But Christian pressed on through his high school years only to discover that college wasn't any easier. There, many of the professors were openly hostile to the Christian faith. He found himself blamed for the ills of modern society. One campus group even labeled the campus ministry that he attended a hate group. But Christian loved his fellow students, and he did everything that he could to share Jesus' love with them. Some listened, a few believed, but most wouldn't give him the time of day. Now, after college, Christian decided to enter seminary. He loved the Lord, and he wanted to preach the word. Though he attended a great seminary, orthodox and biblically faithful, he was saddened to watch many of his classmates change their views and accommodate to the new morality of the world around them. They ditched the historic and biblical view of sex and gender. They ditched a belief in eternal judgment. They ditched their convictions about scripture. Some of them eventually returned, but many of them stopped believing in God altogether. Now, once Christian was in local church work, he became a good minister of the gospel. He was solid. The community he served was predominantly unchurched, and he wanted to make a difference. But it seemed that no matter how hard he tried, people's preconceived notions about Christianity and the Bible got in the way. More than once, he was told that it would be better for their town if he left it. One day, laws were passed that made it illegal to publicly teach a biblical sexual ethic. It was labeled hate speech. His wife even wrote a letter to their local politicians alerting them to the fact that they were putting her husband in danger of arrest for being a Bible believer and preacher. But since Christian was a Bible believer and preacher, he bolstered himself in prayer with his wife and elders and readied himself for the next Bible passage that could get him in trouble with the authorities. Humbly, lovingly, he reasoned with the congregation about the merits of God's design for sexuality. But since his words were on the internet, someone got a hold of them, and Christian was arrested. As he tried to sleep that first night in jail, he wondered if he'd done something wrong. He thought back to the joy he had when he was born again at age 16. He felt so light, so free, so loved. But now he was suffering. He was in pain. It felt like the bars of the prison cell were closing in on him. And at that moment, in what seemed like an inaudible whisper within, Christian heard a voice say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have testified of me and you will continue to do so. I love you, I am with you, and one day we will be together forever. Christian was comforted. He knew Jesus was right there in the cell with him. I tell this story to begin this teaching because at this point in Peter's letter, we have already celebrated the living hope that is ours because God caused us to be born again. People who belong to Jesus rejoice because of the eternal inheritance God is guarding for them 
and guarding them for. One day we will enter glory with God, and for this we rejoice. That's what verse three through five of 1 Peter 1 are about. But Peter knows that the new birth, like our original birth, will inevitably lead to trials of various kinds. And for the church to be what it needs to be, Peter saw how important it would be for us to suffer well. Just as a baby cannot grow and mature without some strain and struggle, so God's people cannot accomplish their mission without entering into difficulty. The nature of the church is that we are a collection of people designed by God as the vehicle which confronts the world with the gospel. We are designed to bring the hope of Christ to a world God loves. Now this sounds good to us. We love the gospel, but it's a mission that cannot possibly be completed without hardship. The very nature of gospel preaching, declaring sin, righteousness, and judgment to a humanity bound and blinded by brokenness means that many will reject the news we declare. And this rejection will not always be peaceable. Hostility will arise. The way, the truth, and the life of Christ are at odds with the world system. Passions and perspectives will war against the truth of the gospel. And Peter knew this, and he saw how his audience was already in it. They'd been born into a world of hostility, and he needed to show them and us today how to live. But he had no chance, no chance at all of instructing them if they somehow thought that the Christian life would be free of conflict. So at this beginning point in his letter, he started preparing them for a life of suffering. To complete their mission, they had to be willing to suffer. This really is the heart of the whole letter. Peter wants us to endure pain well. As I've been saying so far in our study of 1 Peter, he does not want us to angrily fight back because no one comes to Christ that way. Peter also doesn't want us to flee and sequester ourselves away from the world because no one comes to Christ that way. And he does not want us to conform to the thoughts and perspectives around us because no one comes to Christ that way. And Peter wants people to come to Christ. So he wants us instead to stand firm with our Lord who, for the joy that is set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Because this is his heart, Peter quickly got to the subject of trials. I want to call these exile trials today. Exile trials are pains attached to the Christian life. Trials we experience because of our mission as ambassadors for Christ. And today we're going to consider these exile trials. In the passage, we are going to consider three things about them. First, we'll learn that they are our present, current reality. We are in them today and will likely increasingly experience them in the future. Second, we will learn that exile trials can generate beauty. Though difficult, they can produce some powerful results among God's people. And third, we'll learn that exile trials are endured by love. 
You see, when Jesus captures your heart, when Jesus is famous to you, when he's glorious, wonderful, beautiful, personal, transcendent, helpful, gracious, merciful, kind, and compassionate to you, you will endure trials well. So let's look at the first movement. Number one, exile trials are our present reality. Exile trials are our present reality. For this, we look again at verse six. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved by various trials. What are these various trials Peter thought the church he wrote to would experience? No one knows, not even Peter. Uh, There's no indication that these people were under any state-sponsored persecution at this point in history. That would come later. And all through the letter, I'll remind you that the pressure that they experienced was verbal and social rather than physical and official. So when Peter told them that they were grieved by various trials, he's using a term indicating that exile trials would take many different forms. His words remind us of the words of Jesus to his disciples when he said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We don't know specifically what the tribulation will be. It can come in various shapes and sizes. But though this verse can justifiably be useful to us when in any kind of trial, I wanna be careful to state afresh that I think it is directly applicable when we are suffering for the sake of Christ. You know, make no mistake, all trials are difficult. We know that, and Christians will walk in all kinds of trials. We will suffer loss, we will endure sickness, we will experience limitations. James even used the same terminology Peter did when he told us in James 1, verse 2 and 4, that we should rejoice at what various trials can do to our character or to our inner person. But Peter specifically is highlighting not just trials in general, but exile trials, the kind of difficulties that are attached to being Christian. He did this by telling us that though we might rejoice over being born again, that might be what stokes us, makes us happy, we will also be grieved by various trials. So last week or two weeks ago, we saw that we rejoice and we have a living hope, but we also grieve. We're excited about where we're going, but we're also grieved by the trials of today. This means that though we celebrate our future in heaven, sometimes our belief in Jesus will cause us pain here on earth. And throughout his letter, Peter is going to talk to us about suffering for righteousness' sake and for doing good. He'll tell us not to be surprised by these events, but to instead have the mind of Christ and rejoice to share in Jesus' sufferings. So keep this in mind with this first verse that we're looking at today. Peter is talking about opposition because someone is a Christian. But Peter comforts us by telling us that these exile trials are momentary. Did you see that there in verse six? He said, they are now for a little while. This reminds me of the words that Paul spoke to the Corinthian church when he said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
could these men, how could Peter and, and Paul call our affliction in this life, especially the kind that's attached to our allegiance to Jesus, light or momentary? How could Peter, a man who was eventually crucified upside down, say that our exile trials are for a little while? Well, of course, he could only say these things in light of eternity. When compared to our forever with Christ, this life is incredibly short. Even our dear brothers and sisters in parts of the world where Christianity is against the law, some of them jailed and mistreated for the duration of their lives, they can say that their suffering is for a little while compared with eternity. That's what Peter has in mind. And he's gonna clarify this at the end of his letter. First Peter 5, verse 10, he's going to say, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But Peter also shocks us by saying that these various trials are sometimes needed. Look at that in verse six. He said, if necessary. If necessary. What did he mean? Well, think of it this way. Jesus did not needlessly suffer, and neither will we. Jesus' suffering produced, and our suffering also produces. In a moment, we're going to consider how it produces. But this little line from Peter was meant to encourage the church. The various trials they were in for Jesus did not escape the sight of God. If needed, he would allow them to pass through these trials. Like the psalmist of old who said, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We as believers can say the same thing. I will go through these things if necessary in the sight of God. But Peter also acknowledged that these exile trials hurt. That's why he said that we would be grieved by them in verse six. This should not be a surprise to all of us. That's just the nature of trials. But, but I'm glad that Peter clarified it. I'm glad that he stated it. Some might mistakenly think that the Christian life is one of walking on water a spirituality that transcends suffering, a nirvana that inoculates someone from pain. But that's really not the way of the Christian life. When trials come, they hurt. Psalm 69, verse 20 says, reproaches have broken my heart, so I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. This is the biblical life of pain. All this to say, exile trials are our present reality. That's my first point today. These are things that we could be walking in right now. For some of us, these exile trials, suffering for Jesus' sake, it's kind of looming out in the distance. For others, being in pain for Jesus is already our experience. Some of you are worried about looming hostility. Others of you have already tasted it. Peter is going to keep us straight in this letter. He won't let us get away with bemoaning suffering that is caused by our folly or our sin. He's talking here about suffering for Jesus' sake. 
And as we increasingly embrace an age that is post-Christian or post-post-Christian, I pray that we can grow in the understanding that these exile trials are our current reality. Okay, but how can God use these trials in our lives? Well, let's look at our second point. Number two, exile trials generate beauty. Exile trials generate beauty. Read verse seven again with me. It says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter tells us that these exile trials that we go through will test and prove the genuineness of our faith. In the same way, he says that gold is purified by fire, so our faith is purified by the fires of various trials. But our faith, according to God's word through Peter, is more precious than gold that perishes, more valuable than even the most valuable substance or substances on earth. But how do trials for Jesus test and prove the genuineness of our faith in Jesus? In one sense, that's really what the rest of 1 Peter is all about. He's going to describe the grace of exile, the life that is purified by or of worldly attachments by the fires of exile trials. But rather than overview the entire letter right now, let's consider Peter's assertion in this moment. He's saying trials do something good to our faith. They test and purify and prove our faith. So trials generate something beautiful. How do they do that? Well, think of it this way. What is the opposite of the words Peter used? What's the opposite of tested and genuine? The opposite is untested and fake. Exile trials have a way of driving out both. And this is good because both are major problems today. You see, with an untested faith, a believer can, re can remain weak and uninformed. Trite platitudes, a lack of commitment to grow in biblical knowledge, and a non-existent prayer life can survive a lack of testing. But when the fires of exile trials heat up, that same believer, they're forced to grow. Their faith is tested. So the person who got by with their own opinions or pithy sayings, before must now drill down into the deeper truths scripture gives them about reality. The person who skated by with only a cursory knowledge of God's word must now wrestle with what they believe and why they believe it. And the person who barely prayed for revival, the expansion of the kingdom, their pastoral team, or the salvation of their community must now press into actual times of sitting down and praying to God. But Peter also said that trials help prove the genuineness of our faith. You see, with a false or fake faith, someone can claim Christianity without having true belief. And this works when there's some kind of advantage that's offered by being identified as a Christian. Maybe it makes a family happy. Maybe it provides friendships in the community. Maybe it's what the bulk of society is doing. Maybe it's the honorable thing. Maybe it's expected. Call it 
the presidential version of Christianity. I don't know if they're really a Christian or not, but they're sure saying they are. But when exile trials hit, only genuine Christians will persist in biblical, orthodox, true Christianity. It costs too much to fake it. So exile trials are good because they generate more beautiful believers who make up a more beautiful church. Counterfeit Christianity, it's a huge problem. And trials for following Jesus are helpful in purging us of it. And according to Peter, they are part of God's plan to purify his people. And purifying his people is part of God's way. Proverbs 17, verse three, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Hebrews 12, verse 11, for the moment, of all, dis- for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Isaiah 48, verse 10, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So exile trials can produce something beautiful. So Peter thought about this beautiful thing that would happen in the future and the present because of our exile trials. He said in verse seven that our faith would be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus returns at the end of the age, a purified and tested faith will be a cause for massive celebration. But let's look at one last thing today. Number three, exile trials are endured by love. Exile trials are endured by love. Look at verse eight again with me. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that, it, that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So today, we've seen how exile trials are our present or current reality and that they can generate beauty inside of us. But the last thing I want you to see is how exile trials are endured by love. Peter said right here, though you've not seen Jesus, you love Jesus. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him with inexpressible joy that's filled with glory. I I think this whole thing floored Peter. You know, Peter, if you remember, he had seen Jesus. When he was jailed or beaten for Christ, he could recall walking and talking with the Lord. He'd look Jesus in the eyes and had felt what, what it was like for Jesus to look him in the eyes. He had touched and talked and walked with Jesus. He had known how valuable those experiences were in his life. And when life was a nightmare, Peter could dream of Jesus. But he knew that his readers did not have the same experiences with Christ. They'd not known Jesus when he walked the earth. They'd not seen him, but they loved him, Peter said. They could not see him now, but they trusted him, Peter said. Maybe it made Peter think of Jesus's words to Thomas. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I think Peter knew how odd this was compared to that society. 
All the religions of his day, including the Judaism that he left behind, had powerful and external symbols attached to them, symbols that would inspire. They had temples, some of them had idols, they had priests. Even the Roman Empire had eagles and colors and rituals and coinage that reminded the world of its power and authority. But these humble Christians had an unseen Jesus who they intensely loved and trusted with their lives. But this is the way forward, brothers and sisters. When exile trials come, you will get through with a love and a trust for Jesus. You cannot survive in a climate of exile trials without a real, personal, daily, living relationship with the invisible Christ. You see, in Christendom, where Christianity blends nicely with the culture around it, believers can get by with a very nominal Christianity. They're not really thriving, but because they don't experience much hostility for their faith, they can get by with a few prayers while driving around town, a church activity or two each month, and a distant relationship with Jesus's mission. But when exile trials hit, the only way to survive is by pressing into Jesus. Prayer, community, service, spiritual formation, fasting, discipleship, learning, it all increases because it has to increase. There's no other option. And when you love and trust Jesus, he gets you through these exile trials. That's what Peter said in verse nine. He said, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In Peter's mind, people who love and trust Jesus while suffering for Jesus get to experience their salvation today. Right now, people like this taste God's goodness. They experience Jesus. You might remember Daniel's friends from the Old Testament, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or we often know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names. They were men who felt some strong exile trials. When the music played, signifying that it was time to bow down to a gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, they refused to bow. They were thrown into the fiery furnace, destined to die. They didn't, and instead walked around inside that same furnace while the fires blazed. And Nebuchadnezzar said, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. Who walked around with those men in the midst of the fire? I think it was our Lord. They went through the fire. They endured the brunt of the exile trial, but they got Jesus. They'd not seen him, but they loved and trusted him, and so they did see him. And when the music of our society plays, and when it feels that nearly everyone, right and left, is casting themselves down at the feet of an idol, a love for and trust in Jesus will get us through. He will stand with us in the fire. 
So again, Peter is not calling us to fight with anger, flee like Pharisees, or conform like cowards. Instead, he's called us to stand firm and endure the various trials set before us. These days are our current reality, but they can do something beautiful in us and are ensured by a love for Christ. Remember the beginning of this teaching? I told the fictional story of a young pastor named Christian. He was jailed for preaching the Bible. But there's one element of the story that was inspired by a true event in my life this last week. This last week, I was texting with a pastor friend of mine in Alberta, Canada. His city has recently passed ordinances that could get Bible preachers in serious trouble. His wife has even written to the authorities, pleading with them to reconsider. She told them, you've created laws that make three ways for my husband to go to jail for doing his job. Exile trials, man, they're here, and they will increase. So we must allow Jesus, whom we haven't seen, to make us strong for the days to come. We must press in to the Lord. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.